James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Oh, great, thank you, Rebecca. I wonder what you make of this quote uh, from Pastor Scott Hubbard. Listen to what he says. I sometimes think... I could be very holy if, uh, after doing my morning devotions, I stayed in my room all day long. I find that patience, for example, comes easier by myself. I feel a general kindness and goodwill when I'm alone. I imagine myself ready to bear others' burdens. But then I leave my room and begin interacting with some of those others face-to-face. Before long, I wonder where all my holiness went. People, it turns out, have an irritating way of poking my spiritual fruit, only to reveal just how many of those apples and pears are plastic. He goes on, true holiness may begin between God and the individual, but it finds full expression in community with other people, other wonderful, glorious, frustrating, and sometimes difficult people. I wonder if you've uh, ever had a thought like this. Oh man, I, I would be a really good, mature Christian if it weren't for all these other people in my life. If I could just stay here with God and, and ignore them. Oh, friends, we know that Christians are called to love one another. After all, Jesus uh, says in John 13 to his disciples, a uh, new command I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, by this uh, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. We know that the church is called to be a a new community, one that's set apart from the world, one where people from all races, ethnicities, backgrounds, uh, languages, opinions, preferences uh, come together, and they don't merely uh, tolerate each other, they radically love each other through their differences. 
united in Christ, they extend grace and mercy. And yet from experience, we know that this is often not easy. We know that churches can sadly be battlegrounds for conflict. We know our homes, our our marriages, our workplaces can often be ripe with anger and frustration and bitterness. By God's grace, I think Ambassador is a loving, Christ-honoring church, Uh, imperfectly, of course. uh, No church is perfect, but I feel we're growing in many encouraging ways. And still, there are times when the church, including this one, can fail to love each other well. There are times when conflict and disagreement, disunity, slandering can creep in. Uh, It happens. And it can happen to us. We, we are not immune. What we'll see in our passage is that James is extremely concerned about this conflict that he sees in these Christians. He addresses this community of believers who claim to be Christians, but then they live and behave just like the world. Now they're fighting and conflict that sadly come to characterize them. At this point in James' letter, uh, we aren't really surprised to hear about these conflicts. If you've been uh, following along with us, uh, we saw in chapter 3 that they were using their tongues harshly against each other to slander and gossip, tear each other down. We also saw that they were characterized by the world's wisdom. Uh, Things like selfish ambition and envy had characterized their hearts. Uh, And James isn't concerned just because uh, fighting is bad, like stop fighting. Well, because of what their conflict reveals, a heart that's not devoted to God, a a disingenuous faith. And so in his love for them, he's going to take aim at the root of their fighting, what's happening in their hearts. He wants them to see that in order to resist conflict, they're going to have to repent of these sinful desires, and humbly rely on God's grace. I think the same goes for us uh, this morning. We must resist conflict by repenting of sinful desires and humbly relying on God's grace. You'll see there in your uh, handout, the passage breaks up into two sections. First, we'll see the root of conflict, and then we'll see the remedy for conflict in the second half there. So first, let's look at the root of conflict. Verse 1, as often James does, he starts a new section with a a pointed question, kind of a rhetorical question. He says, uh, what causes fights and quarrels among you? You see all these divisions that are happening, this disunity? Uh, What's the cause of that? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. This is the first root he identifies for us. It's these these desires that are going unmet. The word for desire here uh, in the Greek is where we get our word for hedonism, uh, as this kind of self-indulgent pleasure or a a lustful passion. And James says these desires are, are battling within you. Uh, They're waging war on your heart. Uh, They're straining to rule you, to uh, drive you. And so uh, you can see what he's saying. The the conflicts that are happening out there among you are actually the result of a conflict that's going on first in your own heart. 
These unfulfilled desires are a breeding grounds for, for arguments and anger. I don't think they were actually uh, killing each other here. Uh, I think it's more likely what, uh, he's referencing what Jesus taught, that we murder each other with our thoughts and our words and our actions. Uh, they wanted something and that desire would fight in them uh, through anger until it's met. Uh, it strikes me that James' answer here is not uh, our natural impulse, right? I mean, I mean, what happens when you hear uh, children fighting in the room next to you? Maybe there's you know, some kind of squabble going on. You swing the door open. They're yelling at each other, and you say, okay, what's the cause of all this? What's going on? What do you know is going to come out of their mouths? Well, he did it. She stepped on my foot. Uh, he took my toy. Uh, they said this. I mean, these Christians uh, must have been tempted to point the finger. Oh, it's, it's those guys over here who are causing the fights. Or maybe they point to their own circumstances, the, the trials and persecutions that were coming on them. Of course we're fighting. Do you see the pressure we're under? We can come up, friends, with so many things to blame. It's my parents who are always nagging me. It's my kids' uh, disobedience. There wouldn't be conflict if my spouse just stopped doing this or my boss stopped doing that. It's my circumstances. If my health improved, if my dating relationships were more successful, it's the politicians, it's the person in my small group, it's the leadership style. James says, no. You want to know the, the root of your conflict? Well, let's start with you. Let's start with your heart. What's going on there? I mean, just think about it. There are so many things that we want, and when we don't get them in our own time and our own way, we respond sinfully. You see someone with a certain uh, prestige, a certain honor, or maybe reputation at work, and you, you covet it. Now, that should be mine. You see someone whose kids are getting a better education, maybe more opportunities than yours are. Ugh. Uh, we want to be included. And when we feel uh, someone doesn't include us, uh, bitterness. And remember, conflict, uh, we don't just mean kind of shouting at others or verbal arguments. Maybe for us, it's apparent in more subtle forms. Uh, things like uh, we just ignore them. We, we see them on a Sunday, but we should be sure not to make eye contact or conversation. Perhaps we withhold prayer from them. We refuse to offer them any encouraging words. Or we exclude them from social events. Well, James says, instead of sinning against others, we are to take unmet desires to God. In verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Apparently, some of these Christians were so busy securing for themselves their own desires, they forgot to even ask their good father. The one who James says, uh, every good gift comes from. Uh, if you keep reading, it seems there are others that even when they do ask God, uh, God says no, because their motives are all wrong. Uh, they don't desire these things for God and his glory, but for themselves, their own kingdom, their own glory. Of course, there's, there's many reasons God may answer yes or no to your prayers, but apparently, 
One reason he may say no is that you're treating him uh, like a genie or, or like a slot machine, uh, using him to, for your own gains, your own pleasures, not a heavenly father who knows what's good for you. Of course, it's not wrong to pray for our desires. We certainly should take our desires to God, but we should pray them with a submitted heart, with open hands. We should say, Lord, I'd really love this. I'd really love this opportunity. I'd really love this honor, but I trust you. I trust you to know what's good for me and what's not. Uh, You're wise. Uh, Please guide me. So often, instead of humbly trusting our Father to provide our needs in His time and His, his good way, we, we scrape and we claw to get the things we want in our own time. And so they, they do battle in us. And when they do, when they rule us, it creates this very ugly posture towards others that seeks to, to tear them down, to exalt ourselves over the very people that Christ came to, to save Recently, my wife had to call me out uh, in love for my grumbling uh, to her and to my kids. Uh, I was in Thailand a week ago uh, at this conference, and, and one of my prayers was for health and for focus during this conference. I could really soak up everything there. But of course, in the last couple of days, I got miserably sick. I couldn't even get out of my bed uh, for the last sessions. I missed a whole portion of the conference. Uh, There's people I wanted to talk to that I wasn't able to. Uh, And in my heart, I was just like, "Ah, God, are you serious? Like I came all this way uh, to try to serve you better. And here I am laying in bed, able to do nothing. I deserve to go to this. Uh, And of course, I I took it out on my family a bit. Uh, This wasn't even a bad desire, right? This is something good but I had turned it into a must. I felt entitled to it, like I deserved it. And so I responded in sin. Friends, what is it that you want so much that tempts you to respond in ways that aren't honoring to God? We have to be so careful with this because this can lead to somewhere very serious. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the, Lord, with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, if anyone chooses to be a friend of the world, becomes an enemy of God. Uh, if, you're, if you've read through James, you're used to James calling his readers brothers and sisters. He'll use this title from time to time, but not here. Here he calls them you adulterous people. Scripture often depicts God as uh, the husband of his people. Believers are like his bride, uh, united in a a kind of exclusive covenant uh, of love. That's true both for the Old Testament, uh, God's people in Israel, uh, and for the New Testament, uh, the church, uh, us. And so uh, the implication is is clear when James calls them this, uh, is that they've cheated on God. Uh, They've been unfaithful to him. Uh, to the God who loved his people relentlessly and sacrificially. He says, the desires that you're so after, have so ruled you, have become idols to you, so that you love them more than you love me. 
You've fallen in love with the world and its ways, its self-indulgent values. Uh, This might bring to mind Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, where he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. I think this is true of money, like Jesus says there. Uh, It's true of pleasures, popularity, riches, honor, uh, reputation, status. All can become idols that we become willing to betray God and to betray others to keep and to gain. This is a serious problem because becoming a Christian involves a radical break with our sin. A person cannot continue to to coddle and entertain sin like they did before they were a Christian and still claim to be a believer. Uh, James says, by doing this, they demonstrate their allegiance and love is for the world and not for God. Uh, 1 John 2, uh, 15 reminds us of this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world, of course, doesn't mean uh, all the good things in the world. Uh, of course, creation is good. There's many good things we, we give uh, that are part of the world and we receive. No, here he means the, what, he, what he mentions, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the, the pride of life, this value that says uh, whatever desires you have, you're entitled to. They must be met first. Friends, we must be careful not to deceive ourselves deceive ourselves into thinking that we can live in close fellowship with God and at the same time set our hearts on worldly things, on reputation and and status and glory. That's what he says in in verse 5, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? The Lord says, I'm jealous for you. My love for you is exclusive. And your love for me is the same. I want your affections. Now think about this for a moment. Why would James, in the middle of a discussion about human conflict, uh, be talking about spiritual adultery against God? Well, the reason is this. Uh, The root of our conflict with others is ultimately our conflict with God. You see that? Or the other way to say it, a church culture of conflict and lack of love for other Christians is a symptom of a deeper problem, a fractured relationship with God himself. Uh, Pastor Garrett Kell in the U.S. comments on this passage this way. He says, why is this passage here? Oh, it's to show how our sinful human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery. When we fight with others, we aren't merely sinning against people, but God. How you treat others, friend or foe, is a reflection of how you treat God. As Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, As you did to one of these, my brothers, you did to me. Think of it this way. The next time you interact with someone, whether it be after church today, uh, on the MTR, uh, your spouse, your, your friends, your coworkers, that interaction 
is actually a tangible expression of what your heart is doing with God. The two are, are linked in that way. And so you can see the, the seriousness of what James is saying. James wants to see uh, us to see how high the stakes really are in conflict. Well, this is a hard word uh, to be sure, and, and rightly so. This is a good warning. But James isn't done. Uh, he's told us the root, but the remedy is coming. Uh, what, what a great remedy he offers us. And so point to the remedy for our conflict. Now, James has a tender and surprising word uh, in verse 6. Right after kind of bearing down on them, uh, rather than continuing to pronounce judgment on them, where does he lead them? Verse 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Grace is the unmerited, uh, undeserved love and favor of God to his people. God offers grace to the rebellious, to the unworthy. It's the people like us who are uh, waver between love for the world and love for God. Friends, do you find that you're losing the battle, the war of desires within your heart? Are you in the midst of a significant conflict at the moment? Is there a way to peace? Have you realized a love for the world has, has crept into a corner of your heart? God gives us more grace. This is God's desire to give you grace. God's grace is the remedy to our conflict. There is grace for any and all who have strayed from God. Uh, how is this possible? Because Jesus Christ, God's own son, came to earth. He lived a perfect life, never once loving the world, uh, never once tearing others down, but submitting to God in everything. He died to take the punishment for our rebellion, for our spiritual adultery that we rightly deserved. And so now all that come to him in faith will no longer be God's enemy, but his friend. And God's grace didn't just come one time uh, back when we were saved. God gives grace now to sustain us during our trials, our uh, sin, and our conflicts. His grace is like the soothing ointment on the painful wound of our fights. But James reminds us God is not going to force his grace on you. Uh, his grace is a gift. It's a gift that's meant to be received and so an important question for him is, how do we receive it? How do we receive God's grace? Well, as he tells us in verse 6, God opposes the proud but shows favor or grace to the humble. And James says the remedy is to receive his grace and to do that, you've got to humble yourself. Lay down your pride. Let go of the things you cling to in this world. Come to him humbly. To help us do this, James spends really the rest of the section uh, trying to help us understand what this looks like, uh, what, what it looks like to humble ourselves before God and receive his grace. And so first we see in verse 7, uh, we get this command to submit yourselves then to God. If, if spiritual adultery towards God is the root of conflict, it makes sense that submission to God is the remedy 
It starts with the posture of our hearts. The word submit uh, means to place yourself under, as in someone's care or someone's rule. It's not not a specific action in mind, but more of a sustained attitude. And submitting to God is basically what it means to be a Christian. We say, Lord, uh, I know that you are good. I know you're in control. And and I'm yours. My time is yours. My resources are yours. My energy, my plans, my church, my relationship, and yes, all my desires are yours. You are a loving father. You know what's best. I trust you. It strikes me as I was thinking about this that uh, we don't physically kind of posture ourselves low anymore. Maybe if you think about James' time, if they were kings or someone, they'd physically bow before them. Certain cultures, of course, still uh, will do this. Like I said, I was in Thailand, and the Thai people are are very good at at bowing uh, when they greet you. But but most of us aren't really used to this. Uh, This is why some Christians developed a, a posture of Uh, some sort of submission to God when they pray, maybe open hands. Uh, D.A. Carson, uh, pastor and theologian, describes his memories as a boy watching his father. He was a great pastor. Uh, He would go to his other room and he could kind of peek through the door, uh, the crack in the door to see him there, and he would always kneel when he prayed. And he said it struck him uh, because this posturing of himself before God in prayer transferred to the rest of his life as he submitted to God in, in all other areas. Of course, uh, this isn't required of you. Uh, doing this doesn't make your prayers more effective. Uh, but I wonder what some kind of physical act of submission before God might do for your heart. And this, of course, is what our Savior Jesus demonstrated for us on the night he was betrayed, where he prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He knew that throwing himself wholly into his father's hands was a safe and secure place. Friends, what desire do you currently have that God might be asking you to surrender to him? What will it take for you to give that over and hand that over to him? Well, second, in verse seven, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Satan, our our spiritual enemy, will do all he can to convince you that every desire that pops into your heart or in your mind is good and actually it's entitled to you. You must have it. And the only way to have it is to grab it, to distrust others who get in your way, to tear others down. In fact, he'll convince you that this is the only way to true joy and peace. Friends, the allure of selfish ambition And self-promotion is a lie. It promises you everything and leaves you with nothing. And instead, the Lord says, draw near to me. Come to me. I'll give you that. Let go. Lay it at my feet. I'll give you the desires of your heart. I'll give you real joy. I'll take care of you. I know the longings of your heart. So submission here kind of looks like two things at once. We resist sin and the lies on one hand, and we yield to God on the other as we, as we pray, as we listen to his word, as we remember how he's treated us in the gospel. 
So that's second. And then third, a humility looks like uh, repenting and lamenting. Look at verse 8 and 9. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Part of humbling yourself involves being honest. Being honest about the ways that you've fallen short. The ways that you've uh, done wrong to God. Uh, Cleansing and purifying our Old Testament images of repentance. James is saying, confess to God the the ways where you've loved the things of the world more than him. And notice, too, that this is for Christians. This is not just for those who don't yet know Christ. We admit our need to God when we're saved, but then we don't stop admitting our need of him and his grace. Now, true faith will play itself out in a life of ongoing washing and purifying of ourselves, of admitting, confessing the ways we've failed him, calling on him to give us more grace that we may put, to, put sin to death bit by bit. You say, okay, uh, I get that, but what about verse 9? Grieving, wailing, changing our laughter to mourning? Uh, that may seem uh, a bit strange. Uh, Christians should, should change joy to gloom? Well, James isn't saying we should just grieve in general, but grieve over our sin. The correct response to spiritual adultery isn't to laugh it off like it's nothing. It's to grieve. It's to mourn. To accept the seriousness of what we've done. Friends, it is right and good to be grieved over sin. Think of Jesus in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This isn't uh, legalism to do this. Actually, it's the exact opposite. Lamenting and sorrow over sin fuels love for God, who gives us more grace in the gospel. You'll, you'll never stop being in need of grace. And actually, as you do this, it will become sweeter to you as you realize the greater depths of God's love, even in your failures and sorrows. I think there could be a tendency in Christians to take our sin lightly, to kind of shrug off the ways that we've hurt others or we've hurt God. But the truth is, a lack of lament over sin can expose a heart uh, that thinks of God too lightly, that takes his holiness less seriously. The closer we are to God, the clearer we see our sin for what it is, an affront to the perfect and holy Heavenly Father. And when we see this, it will grieve us. And not just because it messes up our life in some way, but because, because it grieves him. And so pray. Uh, pray, say, God, help me be broken, not just over how sin affects me, but how it affects others and how it affects you. When was the last time uh, you wept over your sin? This may seem uh, uncomfortable, or scary. Now, our world says the path to joy and satisfaction is to submit to no one but yourself, and certainly never to admit your own weaknesses. But James reminds us, God will not let us down if we do this. Verse 10, humble yourself before him, and what will he do? He will lift you up. 
God welcomes the weak, broken, needy. He says, you don't need to exalt yourself in conflict. Entrust yourself to me. I will lift you up in all the ways you need it most. I know the parts of your past that you don't want to think about, uh, the harsh words, the acts of betrayal, the, the broken promises. I know it's painful to admit. But friends, those places of deepest shame are where God loves to meet us. He loves to pick us up, to give us the grace that we need. All this really frees us up to resist conflict and slander and instead to love our neighbor. That's where James returns to in verse 11. He says, don't slander one another. And actually, you know why you do this. That's because you think you're right in doing it. Uh, How often do we uh, treat someone harshly and our response is, well, they deserved it. Did you see what they did? Uh, The danger here is that it proves there's some kind of blindness in you. You're acting as if you're the all-knowing judge. You're the accuser taking God's place. Now you disregard your role as loving neighbor. Uh, One pastor says there's nothing like conflict conflict to expose our judgmental, self-righteous attitudes. How often do we feel justified in sinning against others? Well, friends, there's, there's a wrong way to be right. It can be done in love or it can be done in, in evil judgment. Of course, there's, there's a right and good way to call out a sin in our brother and sister, but, but we need not be hypocrites as we do it. Humble yourself first, and then you're in a position to love your brother and help him. So then, how are we to resist conflict in our lives and in our church? How, how are we to grow a culture of self-giving, humble love for one another. Well, we go to the root. We address our sinful desires to exalt ourselves and satisfy ourselves first. We come to terms with the ways we've loved the things of the world more than the Lord. But we don't stop there. We receive the grace that God so generously gives us by humbling ourselves to his will and his ways, grieving over our sin and clinging to our Savior. As we close then, let me just give uh, a few final thoughts by way of application. Uh, Number one, help each other to humility. As you meet with other members here on Sunday mornings or through the week in small group, uh, be honest with each other about where submitting to God is hard for you. Often the best way to take our sin seriously is not only to confess it to God, although surely we should, but also to confess to a brother or sister. Not to bring us shame, but to help us, by God's grace, fight it and to greater submit ourselves to God instead. If you're not doing that at the moment, find someone you can do that with. Number two, consider who you might need to reconcile with. I had the joy recently of seeing uh, a couple members at Ambassador apologize to one another for a conflict that happened between them. Uh, It it wasn't clear kind of who had all the blame, but this member owned the part of it that was theirs, and they they wanted to make it right regardless. Uh, And that was a wonderful example. Who, Who might that be for you? Number three, pray regularly for others and for our church. It's extremely hard to maintain bitterness towards someone that you pray for regularly. 
whether that's your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, other church members. Because don't we all want a church culture where, where love, peace, grace, giving the benefit of the doubt, forgiveness and care exist? So pray. Pray that God would work in us to that end. And then finally, look to Jesus. Jesus Christ made himself low. He bent his will to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. And what did God do? He exalted him so that in Jesus every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. And friends, if we are united to him, our humility before him and others won't land us in the dump. He will lift us up just like Christ in joy and in grace. He lifts up all that come low before him to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this word to us this morning. We pray, Lord, for uh, your will to be done in our lives and in our church. We ask that you'd, you'd help us identify areas of desire and pride and to submit them to you. We ask that you'd help us resolve and resist conflict. Above all, Lord, we ask that uh, for your grace as we grow in the likeness of Christ who humbled himself for us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.